Part 5 of our journey through the book of Judges begins this afternoon. And if you are joining us for the first time, then understand that these are turbulent times. These are not good times for Israel as a people, as a nation. In the book of Joshua, the people were focused in the conquest of the land, taking the land that had been promised to them. And here in the book of Judges, it should be them settling the land. And yet the theme is not that. They won't do much of that at all. In fact, the theme is the canonization of Israel. They're going to compromise. They're going to justify. They're going to rationalize all day long. And they're going to become not more like the God they serve. They're going to become more like the nations around them, which they were told to drive out. And so this perpetual cycle will continue where they will walk away from God and God will raise up a foreign nation to oppress them and then they'll cry out to God and then He'll raise up a deliverer, a judge, and they will drive their enemies away and things will be good for a while and then not so much. Lots of self-destructive behavior in the book of Judges. Well, that's where we pick up today. In chapter 3, verse 1. Part 5 of our series. It says this in Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to, keyword, test Israel by them. Some of the nations were left. Some of the nations when Joshua, during the conquest, were driving out. Some of those were left. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These first two verses in the book of Judges are going to elaborate the preceding verses. They're going to elaborate more of this idea of Israel being tested by God. The the test, of course, was announced last week, back in chapter 2, verse 21. It says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Joshua, they conquered most of the land, but not quite all of it. In order, verse 22, chapter 2, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. One of the reasons that Joshua, while conquering most of the land, did not conquer all of it, would be a test for the subsequent generations of Israel to see if they would be faithful to God. Because they weren't going to simply ride the spiritual coattails of their father's generation. Like, their faith? It's got to be their faith. It's great that your fathers, during the time of Joshua, you walked with the Lord and they were faithful to God, but what matters is right now. Where are you right now? And... This test is further elaborated in today's story. In order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. The Israelites should learn war. And yet, God's concern is not primarily that they learn how to conduct war. God's concern here is not primarily that they learn different infantry tactics or battle drills or military formations. 
That's not his primary concern when he says, in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war, verse 2, to teach war to those who had not known it before. They should learn it, but that's not primarily his concern, but rather his concern is that they would learn the nature and the significance of, of war. You say, well, why does that matter? Why does it matter that they learn the nature and the significance of war? And the answer to that question is rooted in the reason for this test in the first place. As we already established, one of the reasons Joshua didn't fully drive out all the people is so that for subsequent generations, God could test to see if they would be faithful, if they would walk in the way of their fathers. But we know that doesn't happen because we go back a little further into last week's sermon, specifically chapter 2, verse 10, and what do we learn? That another generation arose. Remember the forgotten God? A generation arose who did not know God or the work that he had done for Israel. Why do they need to know the nature and the significance of war? Well, the why is very much rooted in the reason for the test in the first place. Because unlike their father's generation, they aren't walking with God at all. In fact, they've totally forgotten God and all the things that God has done, specifically as it relates to the time of before, to the conquest of the land. So how could you forget all those things? when God parts the Jordan River and they cross over on dry land, when the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, when they are given a second chance at the Battle of Ai, or in chapter 10 in the Southern, in the southern Campaign when they're fighting the Southern Alliance and God causes the sun to stand still, the earth to stop rotating, to buy them more time, to buy them more daylight to defeat their enemies when he kills more of their enemies by throwing hailstones down than Israel does with the sword, or in their campaign against the Northern Alliance when they're outnumbered basically a million to one, and somehow, some way, they end up winning that one too. That's why he's concerned that they learn the nature and the significance of war, because going back to chapter 2, verse 10, they've forgotten God. And all the things that God has done. It's a distant memory. They didn't know God. They didn't know the work that he had done specifically as it relates to the previous military conquest. Here Israel is. They're the covenant people of God. They're his people. They've come into the land with a mandate. Drive out the Canaanites. And to claim it as their gift. And yet this continued presence of the Canaanites represents Another test. God's testing them. God tests his people sometimes. Will they be faithful? Will they be, faith will they be faithful? Will they accept God as their king? He tests his people sometimes. Will you pass the test? Some of you didn't pass the test this last week. But that's the question. Will we as the the people of God, will we as the church, will we pass the test that we have? Are you going to be faithful to God? I mean, that's really the, the nature of this. This is kind of like, if I had to describe it, this is kind of like part two, or really a continuation of the test from last week. Are you going to be faithful to God? Yes, I'm going to be faithful to God. Okay, well, that's, that's great that you, you say that. Maybe you think that. 
But are you going to follow through with that? Are you going to follow through? Like, I could tell my wife, hey, I love you all day long. But if I'm Tom catting around with all the honeys, <laughs> doesn't mean a whole lot. Not so much, right? So it is with God. Or have you, not heard of them, have you not heard him say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? Or you could tell him, I love you, Lord, but are you obeying him? Are you faithful to him? That's the issue for, for these people. They're the covenant people of God. They've entered into the land. He's given them a mandate. Drive out the inhabitants. But they're not driving them out. They're compromising. They're justifying. They're rationalizing. They're not doing the very thing that they're supposed to be doing. Well, we continue to verse 3. Speaking of nations that he's left there, here's a list of them. Verse 3. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, Leban, from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. Verse 4. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. The test is for, as it says in verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey. The purpose of the test isn't for God. God already knows how this is going to play out. Right? He, he knows the outcome. The, the purpose for the test is for Israel. Are they going to drive out these nations, or will they compromise yet again? Will they justify? Will they rationalize? Will they just decide to settle in with them? Not for the benefit of Yahweh whatsoever. Rather, the test is for Israel to give them an objective instrument that could measure, unfortunately in this case, the depths of their infidelity toward God. Right? Got your test? Got it, and oh, here it is, right? Passing out the results after class. Some of you that happened this last week, some of you that was a good thing, some of you it was not a good thing, but you've got the results, okay? Uh oh. Some of you, you didn't do too good on this history section, right? Some of you, oh, you didn't do too good on the biology section, the math section, the foreign language section. It's for your benefit, right? Oh, okay, I, gotta, I need to study better on that part. Right? Yeah, I... Man, like three weeks in a row now. I keep failing this entire section. Got to do something about it, right? That's for your benefit. To give you some type of objective instrument to, to measure, in this case for Israel, the depths of their infidelity. Yeah, I messed... Had, totally got the history section wrong. Oh, yep, the sexual immorality section. Man, totally dropped the ball on that. Oh, the pride section. Oh, the bitterness section. Yep, that's... Oh, that's not good. That's who the test is for. It's for Israel. It's not for God. God knows what they're going to do. It's for them. To give them an objective instrument to show them, hey, you guys are dropping the ball big time. Well, if that's the test, then I'd say verse 5 and 6 would be the report card. If little things like that help you to remember, it does for me. So here's how they did. 
So the people of Israel lived among, not good, they lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Not good, but there's more. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons as they served their gods. Here's the report card, and expresses God's evaluation of Israel's conduct. And it's not good at all. And they've already been warned. Two sermons ago, the angel of the Lord came, and he said, listen, enough's enough. Okay, God's not going to break his covenant with you. But the fact is, is the covenant blessings... Yeah, we're going to hit the pause button on the covenant blessings because right now, right now you're going to be receiving the covenant curses. I'm still staying in relationship with you, Israel, but uh, you're, you're, you're about to get a whooping. It's coming. And of course, this is the theme of this story. It's the canonization of Israel. This is where Israel compromises. This is where Israel justifies. This is where Israel rationalizes. We can just settle in among them. No, God told you to drive them out. That's the mandate. That's part of the test to see if they're going to be faithful or not to do this. And of course, they're not. And the problem is, is their failure to drive out will ultimately not it's not just disobedience, it's not just disobedience to God, but ultimately it will pull them away from God. And they will become more like the world around them. Sometimes, sometimes I think when we think of this practically speaking, some of us, we're just, we're just so off course and we're doing things that God says not to do. And that's usually really obvious. But sometimes what's less obvious, okay, than that active sin is the more passive sin. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, but these people were slandering and gossiping and you should have stood up. You should have said something. You know that your friend is doing X, Y, and Z. Like, do you love your friend or you just don't want conflict? This tends to be kind of the people pleaser type of non-confrontationalist, just wants to go with the flow. It's like, well, I didn't do anything. Yeah, that's the problem. You should have. You should have. You should have maybe had a conversation. Yeah, but that sucks. I know it does. Solomon says, better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy. You should have maybe spoke up. You should have maybe said something. So we see right here, passive, active. Look at verse 5. The people, they settled in. They lived among them. We're not doing anything wrong. No, the, the very thing you're supposed to be doing, active, you're not doing. We're just going to settle in, right? They're not supposed to be settling in. They're supposed to be doing something, driving out the inhabitants. And then the reverse, the active sin, here they are getting involved in these romantic relationships they have no business getting involved with. Getting married, like that ever works out when you get married to someone who doesn't love God. And so here they are, specifically, God's made it very clear not to do these things. So the very things that God has said not to do, they're doing. And the things that God had told them to do, they're not doing. And so we have these examples, right, where they're actively sinning and they're passively sinning. Bottom line, these people are sellouts. They're willing to compromise, be it active sin, be it passive sin. They're sellouts. They're okay with coexisting with the world. They're okay with cohabitating with the world in these type of relationships they're not supposed to be in. But that's a problem because 
God said not to. And furthermore, you're going one way or another. Okay? You're either going towards Jesus or you're being pulled away from Jesus. There is this, there's, no, there's no neutrality here. The world's going to pull you away. And you might think, you might think, application maybe, right? Oh, but it's okay because I can change him. I can, cha- or I can change her. I hear that a lot. I think, what, what is that? Compromise, justification, rationalizing things. And what happens, be it in this specific situation or the, the one I just casually mentioned, what, what ends up happening is you become the one that changes. You become the one that compromises and you become the one that once again fails the test all over again. And it's like, wait, did, did God really say not to do that? That's a very old conversation, right? Did he really say that you could not X, Y, and Z? Did he really say that? It's not technically having sex. I mean, really. It's not really gossip, but I hate her or him. Is it really? And, and then just like Israel, begin to rationalize and justify things and, and compromise. And here, Israel, they are determined to destroy themselves. They, they just want to, they want to screw it up. They're so determined to destroy themselves. They're so determined to mess everything up good that they have going for them. And then here's God totally determined to preserve them. Because there's a, a big range plan here. And the big range plan is that these are the chosen nation. These, these are the, the covenant people of God here in the Old Testament. And God has a, a long range plan. And that the plan is this nation is going to be a blessing to the world. And from this nation there's going to come a king who will rule forever. He will live the life we could not live. He will die the death we should have died. He will pay the price we could not afford to pay. And he will ransom all people. They're totally determined to mess everything up. And God is totally determined to preserve them. And I don't think for a second that, oh, well, because this can easily create spiritual apathy. Well, then I'm okay then, right? Yeah, but you you might hit a, a rough patch. Okay? I think God's preservation of Israel here is a beautiful preservation Beautiful picture, rather, of the preservation, or should I say the perseverance of the saints? But that is not an excuse for spiritual apathy. Like, he won't let me go! Yes, that's true, and it's a beautiful promise for those of us who are in Christ. But that is not like a, a get-out-of-jail card for free. Like, you can't simply ride on past spiritual accolades. God cares what's going on in your life right now, church. What are you doing right now? Are you being faithful right now? Don't care about last month. Are you walking with God right now? There's a reason. I think it's interesting. Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our what? Isn't it interesting he doesn't say weekly or monthly? Could have. Yeah, he could have. He doesn't. Right? Every moment, every day, right? Are you, are you walking with the Lord? Are you being faithful to God? These people aren't. 
And yet, despite the fact they are on this self-destructive course, God is totally determined to preserve them, and yet they are not going to escape the covenant curses. God's not walking away from them. They've walked away. They've whored themselves out. But He's not walking away. But that also means the covenant blessings are currently on pause and the covenant curses are actively engaged. And this becomes very apparent here with the introduction to our first judge, a man really who needs no introduction at all because we've already talked about him in earlier chapters. But chapter 3, verse 7, story of Othniel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, no kidding. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God gets angry with his children sometimes. He does. That's, that's the truth. You can talk about the love of God all day long. If that's the only attribute you want to focus on, he's also a jealous God. His anger was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the, the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. Eight years. There is no consensus on the identity of Cushan Rishathim, the king of Mesopotamia. Sometimes I, I like to throw out little antidotes for these historical trails, but there's just no consensus. We don't know who this man was. But he comes and he oppresses and slaves Israel for eight years. Eight years. Yes, they are determined to destroy themselves. He's determined to preserve them. But don't think that means they're getting away with anything. Eight years is a long time to have the paddle taken to your behind. But that's exactly what's happening here. And then in verse 9, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. They cried out. So the king of Mesopotamia comes in, fulfilling the covenant curses. He oppresses them. The people cry out. And here's the interesting thing. Cried out. It's there. This is not to be interpreted as some type of penitent plea. You could easily read that, and that's how it might pop off the page. Oh, well, they, they, they're having to come to Jesus moment. I don't think that's what's happening at all. Because the, the word... Here in the original language is being used. It does not convey any type of penitent feelings on the part of the people. Rather, they're simply crying out. Okay? They've got the paddle on their behind. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. They're, they're experiencing the discomfort of their sin. And so they're crying out to God. But it raises the important question, do they really want... Forgiveness? Do they really want to repent? Or do they just not want to experience pain and suffering? By all indications, there's nothing penitent about them crying out here. This is a, a very natural human reaction. But it raises a question too. 
We take our test, get the results back, okay? Fail in some areas. Maybe we're experiencing some consequences as a result of, of these areas that we've failed. Pride, bitterness, sexual immorality, whatever. We're experiencing the consequences. Don't know about you. I don't know anyone in here who says, oh, I love consequences. They feel so nice. Like, nobody says that. They don't feel nice. I don't care whether you're 2 or 22. The paddle in your behind doesn't feel good, literally or metaphorically. But it raises the question. In those moments, do, do we want God's forgiveness? Do, do you want to actually repent? Yeah, I know you're crying out to God, but do you actually want to repent? Or you just not want to feel the way you're feeling right now? That's, that's a, I think, a significant, valid question, because oftentimes, this tends to be true a lot. Church, for the covenant people of God. We're experiencing hurt, we're experiencing pain, we're experiencing discomfort. We don't like that. And so what do we want? Do we really want God's forgiveness in that moment? Or do we just not want to feel that way? Because we don't like, even, we don't like feeling guilty. I don't like feeling guilty. So all I want is just for my feelings of guilt to go aside, and that's all I want. I don't want Jesus. I don't want his forgiveness. I don't even really want to repent because God, I already have a plan in my mind. I'm going to mess up again later on this week. So I just, I just, just want to feel good. And like Israel, yeah, we cry out. Why wouldn't you? That's a very natural reaction. But there's nothing penitent in this cry out to God. That's an important question. Do you want his forgiveness? Are you ready to repent? Or do you just not want to feel bad, guilty? Well, despite that, God is so determined, as I said, to preserve them. His grace shines through so loudly Verse 9, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. One of the few judges in this story who's, I'd say, a good guy. A lot of these judges aren't really all that great. Othniel seems to be one of the few exceptions. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And this is, I think, important that we understand this, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions when we talk about the Holy Spirit today. Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God. It tends to be the, that one member of the Trinity that gets just kind of tossed aside, unless you come from a very charismatic background in which that's your favorite member of the Trinity. So, I mean, <laughs> just... Extremes on, on both fronts. But we normally think of, all right, we've got the Holy Spirit as New Testament believers in kind of this 24-7 type operation because he dwells within us. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have that. They just had these momentary instances like here where God would send the Holy Spirit to enable and empower an individual for a specific purpose. And I don't deny that's what's happening here. The problem I have is when you say that's the only time. 
But that's normally how we think of the Holy Spirit. He shows up in a jam, and then he's gone. Versus today, he dwells within us, and he's operating in this 24-7 kind of full-time capacity. I don't think that's accurate. I think the Holy Spirit was operating in a 24-7 sort of way, just as he is now in the lives of Old Testament saints. But you say, Joe, if you're going to argue that, then I'm going to come back and say, what in the world was the point of Pentecost? Okay? That's what you do, okay? I'm going to argue this. Holy Spirit isn't just showing up in these sorts of instances. Obviously, he is, but that's not the only time. But that he is very much active in the lives of the believers. And then you say, well, if that's the case, what was the point of Pentecost in the first place? So, I'll read you something here. And I quote, this is from Piper, the benefits promised on the basis of the new covenant have been enjoyed by regenerate people in all ages. These include justification by faith, the forgiveness of sins, and the possession of the Holy Spirit, end quote. The benefits have been enjoyed on the basis of the new covenant by regenerated people in all ages. You just look at, like, say, Romans chapter 4, 6 to 8. I'll read it. It says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Piper goes on to say, and I love this quote, he's like, I don't think like Luke thought in terms of, oh, it's Pentecost morning, 9 a.m., Holy Spirit showing up, guys, for the first time in, like, history, so, like, get ready, roll the red carpet. I don't think that's what's going through Luke's mind. I think what's going through is Acts 2.17. I think that's, that's what's happening. That this, this is, at Pentecost, the inauguration of a new and wider outpouring of God's Spirit to empower us to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. So what is happening that's happening. The phrase, key phrase here is on all flesh. And of course, this is a quote from Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. But that's the, the key point of what's happening. Because remember, the thinking is, is if what you're saying is true, and the Holy Spirit has been dwelling in believers in a 24-7 type operation, even in the Old Testament, what was the point of Pentecost in the first place? And the key is, I think, the phrase on all flesh. All flesh. And of course, you, if you know the story, they're preaching, it's Pentecost, and Medes and Parthians, and everyone who's come for Pentecost are like, wait, wait, wait a second. Uh, I'm hearing what they're saying. How can that be? Dude, I, I'm, he- I'm, from, I'm from over here, and I'm hearing what they're saying. I'm understanding that too. That's crazy. And then you read the rest of the story in the book of Acts, and then the Jewish Christians kind of freak out when they find out the Holy Spirit has poured out even on the Gentiles. Like, and they have to have lots of, little, lots of conversations about this in the book of Acts because this is so like mind-blowing. How, how is the Holy Spirit being poured out even on the Gentiles? I think that gets at the heart of what's happening here on all flesh. Furthermore, you look at, say, I don't know, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And... Uh, Think about this. So Stephen, he's about to die. He's about to be the first martyr. He's about to be stoned. And he's just given a a rebuke of these people. 
And notice what he says here. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's an interesting thing to say. Because he's like, I mean, for timeline-wise, the Holy Spirit's only been around for five chapters. Yet, it kind of seems that Stephen and Luke are under the impression that generation after generation after generation preceding the current generation have been resisting the Holy Spirit. But how is that possible if he's just showing up in Acts chapter 2 in this sort of 24-7 operation? There are many texts, Old Testament texts alike, that call for a present realization of the promise of the new covenant through the Holy Spirit. And of course, when you think of one, I think Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 to 28 is probably at the forefront, right? This is the, I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and I'm actually going to cause you to be able to obey the things I've commanded you to do. It's phenomenal. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Moses, they've all predicted this great redemptive work for the future when they would speak to the nation as a whole. And yet, I don't think any of them thought that an individual could not also experience what they predicted for the nation as a whole to experience in the here and now. And the reason I say that is for reasons like, say, Deuteronomy 10.16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's a call in the here and the now to do something that, quite frankly, shouldn't be possible to do unless my thesis was accurate and the Holy Spirit isn't just showing up for the first time in the book of Acts to dwell in believers in 24-7 operation. Furthermore, Jeremiah also sees this as experiential in the here and the now. In Jeremiah 4.4, when he calls them, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. How, how can you do this if we got, Pentecost hasn't happened yet? How do you do this in the here and the now? I don't know how to do that. And yet Jeremiah expects them to be able to because of what God has already been doing. And, of course, Ezekiel 18.31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make make yourselves a new heart and new spirit. But how is that possible? Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Moses, yes, they have predicted this great redemptive work for the future when they would speak to the nation as a whole, but they also intended for the individuals to experience it now. And that, I think, is reflective in the text that we've read. And you even go to say, in Isaiah 51.7, when we glimpse at the Old Testament saints, when we glimpse at men who are currently and presently enjoying the blessings of the new covenant. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men. Jeremiah 31, 33, he's already predicted that this is going to happen, and yet Isaiah 51, 7, he's like, oh no, it's here. What's going on? You say, okay. Do some explaining, Joe. That's what I would say to me. I 
I think the explanation is best by the Apostle Paul. And uh, it's very much captured in the next text we're going to look at. But what Paul is basically going to say is that only elect Israel, only those elect in Israel were truly the children of God. The rest of Israel was hardened. And he says so in Romans chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? No, 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 no. That didn't happen. They didn't fail. The elect obtained it, but the rest, they were hardened. That is, under the old covenant, what Moses said in Deuteronomy 29.4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or even eyes to see, or ears to hear. And that turns out to be true for most of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. But, to some, he did give a heart so that they would love him with all their heart. And that's true in Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live, that you will delight in his law to do it. Piper says, if this is not a regenerated heart, then we don't need regenerated hearts, people. But you're thinking of all those New Testament texts that say that something new and unique happened when Christ comes and something new has happened. Jesus has come. There was a time in which the Old Testament saints trusted in the promises of God and now they trust in Jesus. Now they trust in Christ alone. Something new has come. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh as we saw in Acts chapter 2.17. And this is mind-blowing. All flesh. You read the book of Acts? Multiple conversations like, whoa, you guys? You guys are Gentiles. How is this possible? Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. That's how it's possible. And that, of course, is what is happening. Piper uses a metaphor by way of summary to capture the saving rule of God, which has always been in effect. It was inaugurated at the coming of Jesus, and he uses an example of a I guess a former seminary president at Fuller Theological Seminary, but it, you could apply it to <clears throat> Jerry Jr. when Jerry Sr. died in May of 07. You, you could apply it to lots of different situations. Several months before the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, before he was openly inaugurated, in the months leading up to that, he was preparing and doing, to a certain degree, the job and the role of the president. Okay, be it unpacking his office, setting things up, getting used to the battle rhythm of the day. He didn't just start at his inauguration, start doing what the president of the seminary was supposed to do. He had been doing that in months leading up to it. It's not the Holy Spirit just started doing what the Holy Spirit does at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had been doing that throughout history. But rather, it was the inauguration in this new and wider, far-reaching way that occurred at Pentecost. And it's really good news for the people of God who find themselves eight years under the rule of the king of Mesopotamia to know that Yahweh can deliver Israel from this oppressive leader. That Yahweh can deliver his people from any foe. That God can enable and empower one man, God can enable and empower any one of us 
to pass the test that many of us have been failing over the last weeks or months or years. And the problem here is that I don't think many of us believe that. We don't believe that victory is possible. We don't believe that there is another outcome in which we don't fail the test yet again. Here it is. Fifth week in a row, right? Failed the history section. Fail. Failed the biology section. Well, I mean, that's understandable, but... Failed the sexual immorality section. Again, the bitterness section. Yeah, uh, own that one. The pride section. Own that one. And I think for many of us, the problem isn't even those things I named. The problem is unbelief. I think for many of us, you don't believe that there's another possible outcome in which you don't fail the test yet again that you will face this week in your life. Church, have you not heard? Have you not heard that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world? You know, have you not heard that? You don't believe that, church? It's First John 4, 1. I got it. You're up against a powerful enemy. So is Israel and the king of Mesopotamia. See, we have more in common with them than I think we realize. So I'd never forget, right, another generation that arose who did not know God or the works that God had done. So that wouldn't happen to me. For many of us, it is. Yeah, well, of course I failed that test. I always fail that test. Do, Do you not know who your king is, church? Have you forgotten what he's done, church? I mean, I'm still blown away by the story in Joshua when he caused the sun to stand still. But herein lies the hope for the church today. The church that is constantly being pulled to be more like the world around us. That's the key. The key is, as the prophet Zechariah tells us, that victories are not won by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that came upon Othniel. And so many of us, we don't exercise that power. I'm not trying to be weird or crazy charismatic right now. I'm not. But we don't exercise that power. We think, oh, I'm going to fail the test again. Remember the new covenant promise? Throw Ezekiel 36 back up on the screen. I want you to look at this for a second. The promise of the replacing the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And notice what he says. Ezekiel 36. He says, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Literally, he's going to enable and empower us to do the very things that he's commanded us to do. That's the promise. It's Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. Like I said, for most of us, it's not even the, the specific issue isn't even the test. It's the unbelief. We don't think victory is possible. You go tell that to Othniel and the Israelites who lived under the king of Mesopotamia for eight years. That's what you do. That's the battle. It's against unbelief more than anything else. So as the band comes, I want to pray for us right now. God, many of us 
I have been struggling week after week after week after week, much like the people in the book of Judges, and we have our own kind of self-destructive patterns of behavior, be it active sin, be it passive sin, whatever it may be. And God, many of us, just we just keep failing the same test every single week. And many of us struggle to, I think, even believe that anything other than failure is an option. To think that we don't have to fail. So God, I pray that you would help us right now to know that the same Holy Spirit that has always been is there to enable us literally to cause us to walk in your statutes. And so God, I know it's hard. I'm not trying to make light of how challenging this is for us today, but we ask for your help in the battle against unbelief. In those moments when we think, gotta fail, gonna mess up again, whether it's with bitterness or pride or immorality, whatever it might be. God, protect us against unbelief. We join with Saint Augustine, as he prayed so many centuries ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God, enable us to do the things that you've called us to do. Help us, Jesus. Protect us against unbelief. Keep us from stumbling. I don't want to stumble, Lord. We don't want to be the people that we just simply say we love you and then our actions betray the very words coming out of our mouths. And we want to pass the test. We want to be faithful. Help us to be faithful. Amen.